it's really nice to be together with you guys and just have a chance to worship together. Um, and Lane and I were talking last week, and I was pretty sure that this week, since we're studying Abraham, that um, Lane was going to put on our song order, uh, Father Abraham, <laughs> so we could all sing that a few times. Um, no, I'm actually kidding. But as I was thinking about it, um, I realized that so many kids sing that song, um, Father Abraham had many sons, I am one of them and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord, without really ever considering, I guess, what it means. Um, and for us today, I think in a lot of ways we don't think about Abraham very often. Abraham isn't someone that comes across in our conversations or our thoughts very often. We know he, that he's a patriarch, whatever that word really means, but how does the life of Abraham relate to us? Like, what is our perspective of Abraham? And I'm sure that there are many different perspectives and perceptions of Abraham in this room, but I'm also quite certain that none of us have a perception of Abraham that's very close to how the original audience of Hebrews, the Jews to whom this was written, would have perceived Abraham. So from our perspective, when we come to verse 8 in Hebrews 11, and we see that the writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has dedicated 12 verses to Abraham, it might be kind of confusing, especially when we looked at Noah last week, and Noah got one verse. Why does Abraham get 12 verses? And I think to really understand Abraham well, we need to consider the perspective of Abraham that our original audience would have had. So Abraham was the physical father of the entire nation of Israel. Abraham fathered Isaac, who fathered Jacob, and from Jacob came the 12 tribes of Israel. Many Jews in Jesus' time revered Abraham as their distant father to a great extent, even to the extent that some of them had outrageous pride and arrogance in, in their lineage in having Abraham as their father. This is demonstrated in Jesus' dialogue with the crowd in the eighth chapter of John's Gospel. So if you'll turn with me to John, um, it's the fourth book of the New Testament after Luke and before Acts. I'll be reading out of John 8, starting in verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. So here, when the Jews are confronted with Jesus' teaching that they must abide in his word to experience freedom, their go-to response is that they are Abraham's children. Jesus does confirm in verse 37 that they are his physical offspring, but he also points out that they aren't his true spiritual children. Um, and then again in verse 39, we see the Jews claiming Abraham as their father, and Jesus once again showing them that they are not his true spiritual children. Their actions show otherwise. A similar indictment against the physical descendants of Abraham was proclaimed by John the Baptist at the beginning of Jesus, or before the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. In the third chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, John calls out the 
Pharisees for trusting that their heritage, being Abraham's physical children, was enough to save them. So turn a few books to the left, uh, to the Gospel of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, and I'll read verses 7 through 9 from chapter 3. So this is John the Baptist um, and his ministry preparing the way for the Messiah. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So John, John the Baptist's statement here, makes it clear that these religious leaders were trusting in their position as Abraham's physical offspring to save them from judgment. They weren't willing to repent of their sins and bear fruit. So what I want us to take away from these two passages that we've looked at is the realization that Abraham was more than just an Old Testament man of faith for the first century Jews. Abraham was their physical father, and the Jews looked up to him as the founder of their nation and their religion. As we saw in these passages, this admiration of Abraham sadly turned into a source of idolatry, pride, and arrogance for a lot of Jews. So it's fair to say that the first century Jews to whom Hebrews was written thought about Abraham a lot more than we do today. But for those of us who have repented and believed in the good news of Jesus Christ, placing our faith in him, we are described as the sons of Abraham in a spiritual sense. Paul in Galatians 3, 7-9 makes this statement regarding Abraham's offspring. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what Paul is saying here is that if you have faith in Christ, then you are declared to be a son of Abraham in a spiritual sense, and you receive blessings along with him. Because of Abraham's faith, we have all been blessed beyond measure. For from Abraham came the nation of Israel, to whom the Messiah came, preaching the good news of remission of sins through his shed blood. And this is the message of hope that extends to all people and all nations. So I hope as we consider what the writer of Hebrews has to say about the life and faith of Abraham, we have a perspective toward Abraham that acknowledges him as more than just another Old Testament figure. He's the father of all those who have faith. Through him, all the nations of the earth have been blessed. There's much that we can learn from Abraham and his example of faith. The text that we'll be considering this evening is Hebrews 11, 8 through 19. So please turn in your Bibles to that passage. It was after 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, and you'll come to Hebrews. If you get to James and 1 and 2 Peter, you've gone too far. Um, and we're in, verse, or in chapter 11, I'll be starting in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to this city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the, that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, there's a lot to unpack in this passage, but before we begin, I think it will be helpful if we build a little bit of context about how the life of Abraham fits into the context of the Old Testament history. So in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, there are four main events that are recorded. The first event in Genesis 1 and 2 is the creation account. This event is what the writer of Hebrews is referring to in verse 3 of chapter 11 when he says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Chapters 3 through 5 of Genesis focus on the fall of man and the aftermath of that event. They describe how Adam and Eve sinned by partaking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, were banished from the garden, and became subject to suffering and physical pain and physical death and spiritual death as well. In this section, the story of Cain and Abel is also described, which was emphasized when Josh taught on, on the faith of Abel, the first man of faith. And then also in this section is the account of Enoch, the man who walked faithfully with God and was taken up so that he didn't experience death. And John, John taught on that, on the faith of Enoch, a few weeks ago. And then the next main event in Genesis is the worldwide flood, which wiped out all of sinful man except those whom God graciously spared, Noah, his three sons, and their wives. And Levi taught on the faith of Noah last week from Hebrews 11:7. Finally, in chapter 11 of Genesis, uh, we get the description of the fourth main event, which is the Tower of Babel. This is the account of God's confusion of the language of the people and their scattering throughout the earth. So then going into chapter 12, there's a significant shift in the way that the narrative is portrayed. Instead of focusing on these worldwide and far-reaching events, the focus is on one man. And that man is Abram, the son of Terah, and a descendant of Shem, one of Noah's sons. For the next 14 chapters until his death in Genesis 25, the focus of the Genesis account will be on this one man. Actually, God changes his name from Abram, meaning exalted father, to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude, in Genesis uh, 17. But nevertheless, these chapters are mostly about, about Abraham. And we'll refer to him as Abraham because that's how the writer of Hebrews refers to him. So with all of that as a background and context to the man Abraham, let's focus on Hebrews 11 and consider why he was included in this passage often referred to as the Hall of Faith. Our introduction to Abraham in this passage in verse 8 states that by faith Abraham obeyed. Abraham's faith was a faith that showed itself in actions. He was faithful to respond in obedience to God's call. So back in Hebrews, I'll read those first two verses again. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Genesis 12 describes Abraham's calling in greater detail. And from that passage, we know that he left behind his father, Terah, who was 145 years old at the time, and all of the prospects that Abraham had in the land of Haran where he was dwelling. He left his father's religion and most of his family. He left the only way of life that he had ever known. 
So Abraham knew that he was leaving things behind, but he didn't know where he was going or what to expect even, only that God had promised to make him into a great nation, bless him, make his name great, and through him bless all of the earth. He took God at his word, trusting that God's promises were more sure than whatever prospects he had back home in Haran. By being obedient to go out from his homeland, Abraham became a demonstration of what it looks like to faithfully respond to God's call. When anyone comes to faith in Christ, that person must turn away from their old way of life. We all used to walk in sin and darkness. We were all once haters of God. When God causes someone to be born again, he gives that person a new heart, and they are a new creation. Just as Abraham was faithful to leave behind his old way of life, so we must also leave behind our sinful ways when we come to Christ. Faith shows itself in obedience, and we must respond by leaving behind our old lives and pursuing Christ instead of serving ourselves. Now going back to the story of Abraham, we see more demonstrations of how he faithfully responded to God's call. In Genesis 12, 7, Abraham was promised by God that the land would be given to his descendants as an inheritance. As Hebrews makes it clear, though, this promise wasn't realized in Abraham's lifetime. He had to live by faith that God would give that land to his offspring as an inheritance. During his 100 years of living in the promised land, from when he was 75 to when he died at 175, he never had a permanent dwelling, but as our text says, he lived as in tents, living as in a or lived as in a foreign land, living in tents. In verse 10, we get a glimpse into the foundation of Abraham's faith. His faith was not in his own accomplishments, but in the surety of God. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. This language may be somewhat confusing to us, but to the first century Jewish audience, it would have been a very clear reference to the heavenly Jerusalem. To get a better understanding of what this is referring to, Turn one chapter to the right to Hebrews 12, and we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 24. Here the author is contrasting the Old Covenant, or the Sinai Covenant, with the New Covenant, and he uses these words referring to, referring to heaven. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So we see that Abraham's faith was founded on the certainty of God's promises for the future. His hope was in heaven. He believed God when he promised to bless him, make him into a great nation, give his offspring the land as an inheritance, and bless all the people through him. Because of his faith, he looked beyond the immediate circumstances, which, from a worldly perspective, seemed like a letdown. In verses 11 and 12 of our text in Hebrews 11, we see another example of the faith that Abraham and also his wife Sarah demonstrate. There was an insurmountable barrier from a human perspective to God's promise to Abraham. The inheritance that God had promised was promised to a son who would be born to Abraham and Sarah. But Sarah was 90 years old, and Abraham was 99 years old, and they still had no children together. But when God promised that Sarah would bear a child, she believed God's promise, trusting in the faithfulness of God as the guarantee of that promise. So looking back at our text in Hebrews, verses 11 and 12. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, 
were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. This passage is an incredible demonstration of the faith of Abraham and Sarah as well as the faithfulness of God. God, in his great wisdom, orchestrated these events so that he would highlight the, the faith of Abraham and Sarah as well as his own faithfulness. He didn't want to highlight the strength of Abraham and Sarah, but instead their faith. In this passage, Abraham is described as as good as dead, and we know that Sarah was past the age for childbearing, and we know from Genesis that she was also barren. So from a human perspective, the birth of Isaac was an absolute impossibility. Nevertheless, Abraham and Sarah believed God and had faith in his promises. And through the faith of Abraham and Sarah and the faithfulness of God, the promises to Abraham were fulfilled through the birth of their son Isaac. And that's further described in verse 12 where we see that from Isaac came a great nation, the entire nation of Israel. Abraham was faithful to respond in obedience to God's call, leaving his homeland and his, the only way of life that he knew back in Haran. Throughout his time in the promised land, he lived as a foreigner, never settling permanently, but continuing to trust that God would fulfill his promise to give, the, to give to his offspring the land as an inheritance. Even though he remained childless, he and Sarah believed that God would fulfill this promise of a child through Sarah in her old age. The next section of the passage in Hebrews 11 provides a summary of the lives of Abraham and his descendants with an emphasis on the way that Abraham remained faithful throughout his life. You could say that Abraham was in it for the long haul. This passage describes the reality that a life of faith is characterized by faithfulness throughout life. The men of faith in this passage were still living in faith when they died. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. In verse 13, these all is referring to Abraham and his fellow heirs of God's promise. So that's Isaac and Jacob. And we know that because they're also mentioned up in verse 9 as being heirs with him of the same promise. The things promised are all of God's promises to Abraham and his family. That they would become a great nation, uh, that they would receive all of the land of Canaan as their inheritance, and that through them all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. In their lifetimes, they didn't see the fulfillment of these promises. When Abraham and Sarah died, they only had one son together, which, if we're looking at it from a human perspective, isn't a very good way to start building a great nation. All of the land was promised to Abraham's offspring, but in his lifetime, he lived in tents, never settling permanently. These men acknowledged that their hope was not in the things of this life, but in a future promised homeland and heavenly country with God. In verse 16, there's another reference to a city that God has prepared, similar to the language used in verse 10. So we know that this is referring to heaven. So all of these faithful men were seeking the heavenly Jerusalem. Their hope was in a future kingdom where they would dwell with God in perfect harmony, free from the influences of sin and death. During their lifetime, the gospel of Jesus Christ was still a mystery because God had not yet revealed it. But they had faith in the promises of God that they would one day dwell with him in an eternal city. If Abraham and Sarah and these other men of faith had been focused on the present circumstances, it would have been very easy for them to start doubting the faithfulness of God. 
but they placed their faith in God's eternal nature and his eternal promises. They were not seeking fulfillment in this life, but were seeking their homeland and heavenly city with God. Because their faith was firmly rooted in God and not in their present circumstances, they were able to remain faithful throughout their lives. Verse 15 states that if they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. In Abraham's case, he could have returned to Haran, to his father's household, to his father's gods, and all of the prospects he had there. But if he'd done that, we wouldn't be reading about him in Hebrews 11. Instead of looking back to what he had left behind, Abraham looked forward to what was promised, and he grew in faith, fully believing that God would be true to his word. He trusted that following God would eventually lead to the fulfillment of promises that were far better than any earthly things he could accomplish on his own strength. Friends, isn't this the exact same faith that we're called to live by today? We live in a world that promises instant gratification and immediate pleasures, but we're called to turn away from these things and to pursue Christ. Just as Abraham acknowledged in verse 13 that he was a stranger in exile on earth, we also live as sojourners and exiles on this earth. Peter instructs believers in 1 Peter 2.11, saying, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It is because we have faith in an eternal God and his sure promises that we have the strength to abstain from the immediate and fleeting pleasures of sin. This is the faith that Abraham exercised, a faith that looks forward in eager expectation to the final fulfillment of God's promises, no matter how disappointing the circumstances of this life seem from our perspective. His faith was what allowed him to press on and to continue believing in God's promises up until his death. Just like the other men of faith that we've looked at so far, Abraham was in it for the long haul. After describing the faithful endurance of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the writer of Hebrews goes on to highlight a demonstration of faith that was unique to Abraham. The sacrifice of Isaac is probably a big event that most of us think of when we consider Abraham. If you've grown up in the church, then it's a story that you've heard many times. The writer of Hebrews includes it here in order to show that Abraham's faith gave him the perspective necessary to willingly sacrifice it all. The entire account of this event is recorded in Genesis chapter 22, and the highlights are given here in Hebrews 11 starting in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham offered up Isaac by faith. When God said to Abraham in Genesis 22, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Abraham obeyed without hesitation. I think there are a few barriers to us really understanding the depth of this incredible command from God. By looking closely at the life of Abraham, I hope we can come to see that this command from God was the greatest and most demanding task that God could have asked him to do. The first barrier to us understanding the incredible nature of this command is that few of us here have children, so it's difficult for us to understand what it would be like to willingly offer up our child as a sacrifice. In Abraham's case, this was an even more demanding task because Isaac wasn't just any son. He was the only son of Abraham and Sarah. And he was the son that God had miraculously allowed Sarah to bear in her old age. 
He was the promised son. And this leads to the second barrier, which is the fact that none of us have received from God direct and specific commands that depend on the preservation of a specific thing or person. We know that God had clearly stated that it would be through Isaac that he would fulfill the promise of making Abraham into a great nation. So God was commanding Abraham to give up his only son, who he dearly loved, and to still trust God, that God would somehow make a way and fulfill his promises to him. Just try to imagine with me for a moment the turmoil that would have been going on in Abraham's mind at this point. What was he thinking about as he got up that morning and prepared for the journey to Moriah? What about those three long days of travel with the servants and the wood for the burnt offering and Isaac, who would be the burnt offering when they got to their destination? From a human perspective, if there was ever a reason for Abraham to doubt God, this would have been it. How could God, the same God who promised that he would make Isaac into a great nation for Abraham, demand that Isaac be slaughtered and offered as a sacrifice? We know that this was just a test, but for Abraham, this was the real thing. He continued on for those three days, never turning back in fear or disbelief. And on the third day, when the time had come to go up to the mountain, Abraham stated with confidence, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham believed God that he would be true to his word and fulfill his promises through Isaac. He also knew that God required him to offer up Isaac as a sacrifice. In this paradox, it was Abraham's faith in God that gave him the perspective to continue on toward Moriah and the fateful moment when the knife would extinguish the life of his beloved son. If Abraham had focused his thoughts on his own strength during that three-day journey, he would have come to the conclusion that everything was lost. The life of his son, um, his hope for a future and the promises that would be fulfilled through him, and even Abraham's own dignity for killing his own son. But on that three-day journey, Abraham's thoughts must have been on God and his promises because he concluded that God would somehow make a way. Our text in Hebrews says that he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. So instead of despairing over the impossibility of the situation, he trusted God and his eternal power to solve this paradox. We know that God provided a substitute for Isaac so that Abraham didn't have to sacrifice him. Abraham had completely committed to carrying out the sacrifice, though. So this is what the author of Hebrews is referring to when he says that Abraham received Isaac back from the dead in a figurative sense. What an incredible demonstration of faith by Abraham. Abraham believed God and was fully convinced that God had a perfect plan that would result in Isaac being returned to him as his son and the one through whom all of God's promises to Abraham would be fulfilled. Does this characterize your life, this sort of faith? When God instructs you from his word to give up something in your life for a closer walk with him, do you trust that his plan is better than yours? Abraham trusted God on the hope that Isaac would be returned to him by some miracle, having faith that God could even raise Isaac from the dead. Consider what we have to hope in. Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God. He gave up his life so that you and I might be reconciled to God. God raised him from the dead on the third day according to his own power. We know this to be true, and on this hope, we can believe every word that God speaks to us, speaks to us through his word. Abraham believed God and was therefore willing to sacrifice it all. We are called to exercise the same faith, believing God and trusting him absolutely. 
in the life of Abraham, the father of all those who have saving faith in Jesus Christ, we've seen three principles that characterize his faith. He responded in faithful obedience to God's call. He was in it for the long haul, and he persevered in faith. And his faith gave him the perspective that was necessary to willingly sacrifice it all. As we finish up this consideration of Abraham's life and faith, I would like us to look at one more passage that highlights Abraham's faith. In the fourth chapter of Romans, Paul is describing the truth that righteousness, or a right standing before God, is attained only through faith. As an example of this, he looks at the life and faith of Abraham. So turn with me to Romans chapter 4, and I'll start reading in verse 18. Romans is um, just after Acts and before the Corinthians. So Romans 4, starting in verse 18. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who is delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We've already seen from Hebrews 11 that faith is active. It displays itself in obedience to God's commands. In Abraham's life, this was shown by his obedience to go out from the land of his fathers into the promised land, and also in his obedience to willingly offer Isaac as a sacrifice. What Paul highlights here in Romans is the truth that faith grows and that faith is the only way that we can ever have a right standing before God. The truth that faith grows is evident in Abraham's life. In the chapters between Abraham's call in Genesis 12 and the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, there are several instances that demonstrate a lack of faith on Abraham's part. He trusted in his own strength instead of on God's provision. But as Abraham trusted God more and more, he grew in faith to the point of being able to offer his only son as a sacrifice in chapter 22. And by this point, he believed that God would miraculously provide a way to return Isaac to him. In relation to the birth of Isaac, Paul describes Abraham as being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So in our faith, we ought always to be growing. Faith is not something that you exercise once when you come to salvation. It is the way of life for the Christian, for the righteous shall live by faith. Are you striving to grow in faith so that you are fully convinced of God's promises in his word? Do you truly believe that God's plan is better than what the world has to offer? Finally, and most importantly, have you come to the realization that faith is the only means to a right standing before God? As Paul states in verse 22, righteousness was counted or credited to Abraham because he believed in God. It was because of Abraham's faith that he received a right standing before God. His faith led to actions of obedience, but it was only because of his faith that righteousness was credited to him. Maybe you're here tonight because you think that if you read your Bible enough or go to church enough or do enough religious things that you'll have a right standing before God, that God will accept you. If that's your case, 
I plead with you to turn away from these works which can never save and to place your faith fully in Jesus Christ. According to this passage in Romans, Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And it's only through faith in Christ that we can ever have a right standing before God. Maybe you're in a position where you think that if you can just conquer this one sin that keeps coming up in your life, then you'll be acceptable to God and you'll have a right standing before God. And if you're in that situation, I beg you to put your faith in Christ and his finished work on your behalf instead of in your own strength. And for those of you who have placed faith in Jesus Christ and received this righteous standing before God because of your faith, I urge you to press on in faith. Continue trusting God and growing in faith, just as Abraham grew in faith throughout his life. Let your faith display itself in obedience to God's command in his word, just as Abraham was faithful to obey God's commands. May all of our lives be characterized by faith, just as our father Abraham lived by faith. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we thank you for the truth that righteousness is attained through faith alone. That it's not, it's not because of the works that we do, and it's not because of anything good in us. It's only because of, because of Christ's righteousness that's imputed to us when we exercise faith in him. Father, I thank you for the example that we've seen here in the life and faith of Abraham. Father, I pray that we would, um, that we would be challenged and convicted by this passage, that we would go away from here with a desire to live our lives in faith. We would continue to grow in faith, not being content to just exercise faith once, but that faith would be our way of life. Father, I pray for anyone here who, who hasn't exercised that saving faith in you. Father, I pray that you would impress upon their hearts the need for turning to you in faith and that they would understand that righteousness can only be attained through faith in Christ. So, Father, we just thank you for this opportunity we've had to learn from this text. I pray that all of us would be challenged and that it would affect our lives as we go from here. pray all of these things in Jesus' name, who is the only one through whom we attain righteousness. Amen.